0: This is Amy Impalazzari, host of Tall Poppy Writers Presents. I know how this book ends. Welcome to season two. Today, I am so excited to be speaking with Marie Benedict, the author of the newly released brilliant book, Her Hidden Genius. But she is also, like myself, a former litigator. And I am very excited to speak to her about her path to publishing and also her very unique Genre, which is historical fiction with a spotlight focus on women who have been overlooked in history. Marie, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for
1: having me. I have a million questions of my own. (laughs) Not often I get to chat with a fellow recovering attorney so I'm i know very, very
0: excited. i know and i and of course all of signs have been pointing for our paths to connect i was yes. telling you before we started recording that my sister-in-law gave me the other einstein for christmas as part of my christmas present because she lives in zurich and of course uh Thought that I would be fascinated by the book, and of course I was, and I was so excited to get into an advanced copy of her hidden genius. So, I, as you know, I have been shouting from the rooftops about this book for a couple of weeks now. I'm thrilled that it's it's out and everyone can get a chance to read it now. We're going to talk about that book in a moment, but I first i I think it's really important to talk a little bit about your journey from law to publishing. You were a litigator for 10 years, am I right? I I was yeah. Ten tell us a little long bit. Years. I, <laughs> <laughs> I I can relate. So so where where did you practice?
1: So I practiced. So I went to Boston University Law School. Yes, and I practiced uh, first for four years at Skadden Arps. You
0: moved from Skadden to where? Morrison & Forster. Oh, okay. um, Again, it's another huge law firm. <laughs> right. right? I don't know what am laughing. He's... Not everybody, not everybody <laughs> no. will realize that that was just moving from one bad situation, to one bad marriage yeah. to another.
1: <laughs> right. Now, of course, in my mind, it was going to be so different, right? Sure. Because of course. It was. it was a satellite office of a huge California firm. It was right. going to be warmer and fuzzier. And... And, you know, maybe it was a little bit in just in terms of the culture, but, you know, you still work long hours. You still sure. And it was still the same work. You know, I was still doing commercial litigation, securities focus, some white collar criminal. Um, and then, you know, you talk yourself into, well, OK, so maybe some other law job is the right job. And right. I then after three and a half, four years there, I went in-house, which is what ah. a lot of people do. Um, I as you know, I went in house to then Starwood Hotels, which at that time owned like wonderful, yes, um, of course. You know, Weston, um W uh what do we I can't remember? Is that so sad? Um, it was a huge (laughs) hotel chain, and I ran all their large commercial litigation in house. And and that was better, it was different, but it still wasn't right, right, right? And I think that's what a lot of people do instead of stepping back and really assessing. What their path could be, they bounce around within the profession, thinking right. that that the land right, and and sometimes that does work for people. Sometimes it does.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. But for you, eventually, it did not. No,
1: it did not. No, it did not. So when I was practicing, even when I was at Skadden, I was. So let me back up a second. I never was like thought I wanted to be a lawyer, right? You know, some people always have that notion that that's yes. what they want to do. I did. I, I had sh-
0: that notion. Scadden took still- yeah, Scadden took it right out of me. But, yeah. but, but well, our idea I was that person, yeah.
1: Oh, I'm so so sorry. Yes. Because <laughs> I, I feel like law school, at least when I was going to law school, I don't feel like it taught me how to be a lawyer or what that Correct. was going to look like. And Correct. so when you start practicing, it's so unfamiliar. And the the sort of studious parsing through all the stuff actually that I love about being a writer were generally present in law school, mm-hmm. you know, researching, constructing an argument, advocating, and, and those are skills obviously you develop yes. as a lawyer too, but there's so much more to it than that as sure. being a lawyer. And and it was those things that I didn't know I wasn't going to like until I was in it. But actually what I always loved was history, you know, as a, ah. um, a middle schooler, I, I had a, I, this wonderful aunt, I was a voracious reader and not, never wanted to be a writer. And she gave me this book um, called The Mists of Avalon, which was groundbreaking for the time. It was a a retelling of the Arthurian legend from the perspective of the women. And it really opened up my eyes to the fact that there were women's stories, other pieces of history that we really didn't know. And when I went to college, I became a history major. And I thought, you know, nobody at that time was really guiding you as to careers in general, but certainly not for history majors. And so what I thought, uh, as possibilities were being a history professor or maybe right. being an archaeologist. And then I kind of got swept up, which was kind of happening at that time. And maybe for you too, there was a started to be more of a wave of women going to law school, becoming lawyers. Yes. I had a lot of friends who were doing that. And of course, a history major in some ways is a natural sort of progression you know, major for someone who's going into law school. Yes. And I got swept up in that. And it was not yes. something that I affirmatively chose. Okay. Um, okay. It was kind of like I, I got on the treadmill and I just kept on going. And that, that sense that there was something else I was supposed to be doing start really started to nag at me when I was a disgruntled New York city litigator. And well, that's good
0: for you my... for honoring it because. oh, ten 10 so years me. later. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Because you honored it eventually. Yes, yes. And it's part of the journey, right? It, but what totally was, is. was there something, was there some catalyst when you were in-house that, that sent you to, to find this, this path? Um, it wasn't
1: something about the job. It was actually just a coincidence. I don't want to say coincidence. Uh, my mm. very good friend who I mentioned earlier, Alana Postrea, Yes. um, she, she and I were having dinner together you know, you could order from fabulous restaurants. So we, we did yes. always. Yeah. Um, some, some, Mark, there's some fabulous New York city, Chinese restaurant, whose name is going to escape me, but we used to order from there a lot and we were having dinner in a conference room as always. And um, she asked me if there would ever be a case I would refuse to take on, um, on moral grounds, even uh. though my client had a really strong legal case. Right. Interesting. And I, didn't have an answer to her question. Um, but within, um, gosh, at least within a month, not too long after that conversation, I started to see the very first few cases of Holocaust families of Holocaust victims who were suing to get their artwork back. Um, and this was, you know, we now
0: know. Oh, I Nazis remember this. Yes, yes, yes. Right. During
1: World War II. Um, right. In terms of their art plunder. And there's lots of books about it now. But yes. this was like back in 95. And there was yes. hardly anything. And I became really fascinated with that. For me at that time, it was a real merger of history and law. Mm -hmm. And um, I all of a sudden had an idea for a book I had never written before. Mm. I had never even thought about being a writer before. And so for a six, seven plus year period, maybe even eight years, I chipped away at at writing this particular story, and and um, so you were I,
0: doing that while you were still at Skadden, even yeah. So you know yeah. why it took. Six, seven yeah. years. I, know, I know this is I this know, is perfect. Of right. Right. right, right.
1: So you know, if I, I was waiting in my office for someone to get me something to turn around. I, I might, you know, and I was handwriting most of it, um, right? To me, I might work on it a little bit here and there, and so it took a long time. I had no idea what I was doing. I had never taken a creative writing class and i just kind of chipped away at it until um i was uh, i went i got into this program at nyu for people with um finished manuscripts oh. and i worked with a professor until she said it was this it, it was at a point where I could show it to an agent, right. and I was very fortunate in that I had a friend of a friend who was mm-hmm. a literary agent. Yes, and through that connection, I showed it to her, and she took me on, and we've been together ever since. So, and it was really, you know, it's not like that. That part of it happened overnight. I still, I still had edited. I really didn't know what I was doing but when it was finished um that's when i got my first book contract which was i wrote seven books under the name heather terrell um many of which were legal focused you know that intersection between the law and art
0: right um, for some of
1: those books and history and um until i really found my calling i really look at those early seven books as for lack of a better word, writing exercises to bring me to where I am today. Um, It's like it was winnowing it
0: down. And so your first published, your first publishing contract is while you're still practicing law?
1: This was right. um, So uh, several things happened at once. Okay. Um, I had had gotten an agent. um, I had gotten pregnant. And we were relocating to Pittsburgh, which is where I live now and where I grew up. Um, you know, a lot of things were happening in my personal life. My husband got a job here and all these things kind of happened. And it was at that point when I got my first contract um, that it, all these things kind of came together. And I took that leap to leave the law and and try this path while these other things were happening as well.
0: Right. Okay. That makes perfect sense. I mean, and and so it's funny because It's these things are not coincidences. These are these are opportunities that you have to recognize and take advantage of, which you obviously did. Right. Right. And so so you wrote seven books um under your Heather Terrell. Right. And and so then you decide I'm gonna make a transition in my publishing career. How does that come about?
1: Um, well I had written, I think, you know, those first seven books, the first one I had been working on forever. And then I had to learn.
0: You never have as much time to write as you do for your first book, right? (laughs)
1: Exactly. No (laughs) deadlines, no pressures. And you know, at that point, and I had a multiple book contract from random house for that first book. So I had, I knew I was going to write at least three books and I had an infant and I was figuring that out. And by the time the third book was finished, um, I had two infants or, you know, a toddler and an infant. And I kind of refocused. I couldn't do the deep dive historical books that I had been doing. And I wrote two young adult series, which were easier for me at that time. Mm -hmm. They weren't, you know, it's not that I didn't enjoy that. But again, I knew that it wasn't my end game. It wasn't really... It's hard to describe. Like I was, I felt like I was experimenting with different genres, different. The theme was always the same. The theme was always excavating these parts of history, the voices that have been suppressed, the voices that we don't know. And I was utilizing different genres to explore that same theme. And at the end of those books, I really took a deliberate look at what I had been writing, what I enjoyed writing, what I felt very passionate about. And that was when I made the the deliberate shift. You know, what I what I had loved about what I had done before was was the, the topic, right? The the thematic focus of untold pieces of history. Yes. In particular women's stories. That's really where I was uh, narrowing it down to. And then what I loved from those um two young adult series is I loved writing in the first person, which is something I didn't do yes. in an earlier book.
0: Okay, interesting.
1: And I love that that emotional exploration that those books require, right? That's what right. the teens are looking for, and and it was really the marriage of those two things that brought me to my first book that you mentioned earlier, the other Einstein. Um, and I was starting to to I I didn't set out to find Malevich; she, she kind of found me. Mm-hmm. But um, once I did that, once that all came together, I knew it was what I was supposed to do. That sounds kind of odd, but.
0: No, it doesn't sound odd at all. It sounds very very inspirational. And
1: Actually, in many ways, I feel like I was circling back to where I started. I was circling back to what I was passionate about as, you know, a a middle schooler. Yeah. when I talk to school, you know, schools and younger people, I always talk about that, like to really think about what it is that you were so excited about before society and the world told you what you should. I love
0: that. Yes, uh-huh. yes, and you discovered that. You mm-hmm. said that um you that she found you. H- mm-hmm. How how was that?
1: So I was already kind of I kind of had started to develop this little antenna for this topic, these women, right? And I, one of my son, I have two sons, and one of my sons is he's been like a scientist from birth. And honest to God, when he was like in fourth or fifth grade, decided he wanted to be a physicist, and that has not changed. And I have no idea where that came from. But he and I were reading um, together a children's biography of Albert Einstein, and in it there were about two sentences about Maleva, his his first wife, who was right. a physicist. And uh, and I would argue, or at least it's one of my fictional stories is that she was a played a huge role in the discovery of his early theories. And I read these two sentences and I was like, oh my God, what are the odds that I've never heard of her, right? That Albert Einstein was married to a physicist in university with a physicist at a time when so few women ever went to college. And what are the odds that they were married during his most prolific period when he when he published the four most important theories for modern physics that she had zero to do with it. And then when I went down the rabbit hole of research and really dug her out,
0: her story was just amazing. Well, we'll, we'll shift gears and talk about her hidden genius because that book, it, it is so beautiful and it is s- such an incredible story. There's so much, so many layers. We're not going to give any spoilers, even though it's historical fiction. I, um, I don't, I, I still want to be careful with the story, but obviously place is very important to you. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, the opening of that, of this story, you know, Paris, 1947, Mm -hmm. it's a very, you really, we are very much transported to that place, to that time. How do you do that research? How do you tell, tell me about the process of research of place and time? um, Mm -hmm. That is obvious because obviously in, in the other Einstein, you know, we're, in Switzerland, in in the opening mm-hmm. uh, of that book, and immediately transported there too, the eighteen hundreds, and I just tell me a little bit about your research that sure. goes into place and time. Yeah, so,
1: um, well, let me start out by saying something. A lot of historical fiction writers uh, are enamored or focused on a particular time and place, and so all their books kind of ah, it, you know, resonate in and around yes. there. I follow the woman. I follow her where yes. she leads me. So I have to be open to exploring whatever time, whatever place that is important for her life. And that may or may not be everywhere that she's gone, but there are certain places because I don't do like cradle to grave historical fiction. You know, I'm looking at a particular point in a woman's life. I have very specific themes I'm interested in. I'm interested in exploring how she came to be this, you know, magnificent person um, what the nature of her legacy is, um, the very modern day issues with which she struggles. So usually that's that's a specific sort of span of years in her life. Right. So in terms of of place, I do try to go most of the places okay. that my characters have been. You know, certainly um, COVID has made that challenge yes. more challenging. And but again, too, and what I've learned is. You know, even when I do go and visit a place that my character is inhabiting and I want to get a sense of it, it's not the same um, as actually visit because you can't travel in time back to the place that they actually Mm -hmm. were. Certain buildings, like when I was writing uh, Lady um, Clementine, which is about Clementine Churchill, that was the unique experience. Almost everything about the Churchills has been preserved exactly as Uh, is because they were famous in their lifetime.
0: But most of Uh, the women I write about were not. Were not. Right
1: you know, cities have been leveled, houses have been destroyed. So, you know, sometimes the historical record can help you imagery, things like that can really help. But for me, um, and and in terms of the time setting, you know, not just the physical place, the time setting, um, there's a lot of research that goes into that, that also informs the physicality of the story. You know, when I do my research, the primary research I look for, which helps um, inform who the woman is in the story, because again, I'm inspired by these women, but I do write fiction, right? Right. The the original uh, source material of the woman who has inspired me is the place I start with. Right. And it's once I've kind of exhausted that, that I cast my net a lot wider to encompass the ma- macro and micro pieces of their time and place, you know, right. political movements, military developments. Um, really anything big that's happening, environmental, cultural, gender equality issues, all how all those things are reverberating through her world. And then the micro stuff, you know, things like right. what kind of wallpaper did she have in her house? Yeah. Um, what food would she have been eating? What kind of clothes did she wear? Things that that bring the character, make their, char- their the world that they inhabit really believable and real, but also give you a a sense a tactile sense of her world in some ways. So that's um a very high level maybe too much though. No, not at all. No, research, I, c- it?
0: I feel like I could just pick your brain all day long. Um and and so and because you certainly do that for us in, with oh, this, in this story and and Rosalind Franklin becomes so real for us and um and the interesting thing is Of course, you're describing her navigating through a world. It it opens in Paris. She goes there because the the scientific climate was more hospitable to women. Um, She ends up in London and back in her her hometown of London for various reasons uh, in a place that was not as hospitable. And of course, there's something as I'm reading it thinking, and I'm thinking about your journey, I'm thinking about your journey from law to, to, to writing this sort of book, I'm feeling there's a lot that's very contemporary about the the discussion and the debate, right? So, so part of it is that you've transported me to a very interesting time. And another part of it is, the shocking, jarring realization that not much has changed. I know. <laughs> Isn't it disheartening? Um, yes, yeah, a little bit. But also, but also inspiring, right? Because it makes you. Really, sort of dig into the story, and it makes you understand and relate to relate to the story in a on a very for me on a very personal level. I'm not a scientist um oh, but God, i, dear, I <laughs> okay, so I wanted to ask you about that because yeah. I do find uh, for this this story in particular. The science is fascinating, very accessible so to a person oh, like gosh, myself so who is not. And I'll tell you, and I have, um, you know, I have scientists in my life and I have a, a, someone who, a good friend who is a high level scientist. And I was talking with him about Rosalind Franklin because I was asking him, did he know about her? And he said, of course, you know, in, in that world. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, she, known. she is known. Um, she is known now. And the story is known. And, he, and, uh, there's some thought that her story has influenced um, in a positive way, the Nobel prize um, selection process since in, so. in recent years, I hope so too. Yeah. But, um, but of course I didn't know of her and I didn't know because I'm not a scientist and I didn't know of her role um, mm-hmm. in the, in the DNA Research world, and so it was. I was fascinated by that, and you made that very accessible. And I wanted to ask you if you have any science background, and it's interesting oh to hear you gosh. say that you do not.
1: No, you know, it's it's terrible because I wish I did, because you know, just naturally, there's so many powerful stories about female scientists. You know, when you're looking for a woman who's left um, a tangible legacy behind that we benefit from today, a lot of those are scientists, right? Because you yes. can you can very um, you can get your hands around their legacy. It's harder in other disciplines, um, yes. but that said, I, I I don't have any formal training. And in fact, I don't even know if I took, um, I don't remember the last science class I took, but what happened, I think is growing up, I, I didn't have engaging science teachers. Mm-hmm. And I do think, you know, when I was growing up, um, certainly I think that was thought of as a topic that, you know, wasn't a lot, wasn't really a natural fit for girls. Right. Right. I mean, there was still a little bit of that sentiment. Yeah. But as I mentioned, I have a, a child that's a scientist that looks at yes. the world through a scientific lens and he has made science fascinating for him, right. for me yes. um, watching him resonate to these topics and disciplines and, and seeing how he literally sees the world through that lens it has completely changed my relationship with science, and it has made science interesting and engaging for me. Now that said, it hasn't made it super easy for me. Right. <laughs> you know, I've had to go back and and learn. Like when I do pick a woman scientist, I have to learn not only the discipline itself, in this case, genetics, but I'm yes. also having to learn about historical science, science before we understood what really what DNA was, how it did, how it works. And how it unlocked everything else. So you're looking at science at a time when people were confused about it and and trying to figure out their way around it. And you're also having to learn how science worked at that time. Right. Right. Um, who was who were scientists how was um was it universities was it academic was it companies what was the relationship between those entities what was the the governmental role how did deci- how were decisions made how were they funded you have to learn all about the business of science as well as how science operates on a historic level and that in some ways is a whole other piece of the story but i have to say in her hidden genius more than the two other books I've written about women scientists: the other Einstein and the only the um, the the only woman in the room, which is about mm. Hedy Lamarr, who was an actress but also a scientist secretly, and she actually created an invention that became Wi-Fi. Um, this uh-huh. book, more than those two, science is a, is like a character in the room. Yes, science is the goal. Science is the lens, but science is it plays so much of um a. So much more of a powerful, important role in this book than in the other two, because it is Rosalind's, it is her guiding light. It is well, everything. Well,
0: that, and you feel that. And of course, also shining the spotlight on the business of science and the, 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 uh, you know the the grant the the grant process and the funding process mm-hmm. and the um the roles of the principal investigator and how that's chosen and all of that is a really compelling interesting part of this book particularly for those of us on the outside looking in. So I think that that's really incredible that you were able to do that as well. I hope so. I mean, my you know,
1: I I learn enough to tell the to make it her story um, resonate, right? Yes. Can I get into the nitty gritty? Could I sit down and have a a conversation about the minutia that Rosalind Franklin dug into? Maybe not. But do I have to understand how x-ray crystallography works? Absolutely. No. Do I have to understand You know, who else were the players at that time, Right. bit by bit, what and how she was unlocking things. Yeah, I do have to understand that Right. because that is absolutely critical to her story. Did I have to learn a bunch of stuff to get to the point of understanding that that probably isn't in the book? Yes. Yeah, but that's true of historical fiction in general. In general. So much Mm. in order to get to the point of telling the story so much that actually doesn't work its way into the pages.
0: So, so. I want to be sensitive of your time. I could honestly keep you here all day, but let me just ask you this. So because this is called, I know how this book ends. We always talk spoiler free about the end of the book. And I, I, what I really want to know is, was that always the way the book ends? Because there's something beautiful, uh, about the way it ends. It's a, it's a Mm -hmm. frustrating story. There's frustration. There's, there's, there's sadness, there's poignancy, there's, there's tragedy, there's all of these things. And yet the ending is beautiful and satisfying. Was that always the way it was going to end?
1: I, yes and no. Um, I saw without giving away too much because yes. most people who've ever heard of Rosalind, I think know about the fact that she made, a huge sacrifice mm-hmm. for the science for her discoveries, right? But I don't want to say exactly right, what it is right, right. Um, without giving it away. But at the end, there's sort of a coalescence of her the elements of her largest discovery. Yes. And one of her other passions in her life, which was climbing. Yeah. And um, the way those things came together. And in my, and that I always saw from the beginning, the pattern. Okay. And the way in which they, they kind of coalesced, hopefully in a uplifting way, because at the end, those patterns are patterns of ascension, you know, yes. the patterns of climbing up. I and, love that. Um, That's beautiful. That, you know, I, it's a it's a hard story in many ways, and it is tragic in many ways. Mm-hmm. But I did want to end on that note of hopefulness. Um, because as she says, she lives on, you know, yes. she, she lives on whether or not I excavate her, which is not true of all the women, because her legacy is so vast. We are only now discovering the vastness of her legacy. You know, the other thing I wanted to do, which kind of ties in with her legacy and the sort of that hopeful note is most people only know that, you know, Rosalind Franklin was this brilliant British scientist who discovered the structure of DNA, but had that research taken and used without her permission by two people who ultimately did get the credit Watson and Crick. Right. But in fact, there was a whole other very important chapter in her life after that, very, um, satisfying for her in which she discovered, um, so much about the structure of RNA and about viruses. Ah, right. Right. And her, her, um, her colleague who worked with her at that time, Aaron Klug, he went on to win the Nobel prize mm. for the work that they started. And it's often thought that had she been able to continue that work, that she, and had she gotten the credit that she deserved, she would have won, not one, but two the Nobel two. prizes. Like oh my her goodness. work is that important. right? And I wanted to make sure that the book towards the end of it you saw that other that she's mm-hmm. ending on this sort of very hopeful positive note and to me that was so important particularly because i wrote part of this book in um in times of the pandemic yes her work with rna and viruses is foundational to our understanding of covid and the vaccines that were created her That's legacy incredible. is so powerful and important like we just don't even know now how far it will go how All these amazing female scientists today, who are instrumental in the creation of vaccines, they are standing
0: on her shoulders,
1: right? And that's really just—I wanted to for people to feel that, right? That That this is not
0: new. This is not new. New, just overnight science. This has been building for a long time on people's backs that we haven't necessarily even been acknowledging. Oh, that's incredible. So can you give us a sneak peek at what you're working on next? Sure. Okay. Um, So
1: my next book that comes out next January is called The Mitford Affair. Um, And again, it's exploring the legacy of a particular woman and the very sort of modern day struggles that she has in her life. Um she her name is Nancy Mitford and she's one of the famous um during her lifetime, the nineteen twenties, thirties and forties, the famous Mitford sisters. They were like the It girls, they aristocratic It girls of that time yes. period in England. Um, the Kardashians were, of their time. They were. <laughs> they were except some of them did actually do things to become famous, right? <laughs> right. As opposed to the Kardashians who are famous for being famous. Correct. Um, but in any event she um she had five sisters, but the ones I focus on are unity and Diana. Diana has left her wealthy, fabulous Guinness husband for Sir Oswald Mosley, who heads up the British fascist group in um, England. And this is in the years before world war two in the lead up and unity has left home to go to Munich, basically to stalk Hitler when she ultimately becomes his, one of his closest companions. Um, Nancy has discovered that her sisters are up to a lot more than just fangirl worship of Hitler and fascists. And she has a choice to make um, to either stay loyal to her family or to make a decision to prevent the uh, very negative impact they may have on England as it goes to war with Germany. And Mm. so in some it's a story about how families are divided by political Mm -hmm. views. Right, right. Um, Very interesting and timely. The cult of personality often holds sway um, in political decision making and um, how in many ways the political is personal. And that's a very, very modern (laughs) day issue that Nancy, um, my main character, grappled with. Um, and the choice. So, in some ways, it's it's like all my other books, historical fiction. But in some ways, it's also a spy novel.
0: Yes, it so sounds that way. That's so interesting. Things. Okay, wow.
1: Oh,
0: oh, so that I it was really a... timely one
1: to uh, yes to explore and not a scientist. Which yes, okay. Okay. So,
0: I do. so a small, small departure in that sense, but yeah. still fitting your overall theme. And I absolutely can't wait to devour that one too. Well, tell everyone where we can find you, where we can find your schedule of events relating to yes. your hidden genius. Thank you. Yeah. I have lots and lots of events coming up.
1: AuthorMarieBenedict.com or on my Instagram, AuthorMarieBenedict site or Facebook. I'll, I post those. Um, and I'll be doing lots of those events. Um, for the next really couple months, because my book tour will roll right into Women's History Month events. So perfect. There's lots coming up to to discuss Rosalind Franklin.
0: Well, Marie, thank you so much. Thank I you. am very excited to be in touch now to stay in touch. Oh my
1: gosh, me too. I feel like we just started our conversation.
0: For, oh, for sure we did. For sure we did. Oh and. My gosh. I know that uh, this book is really going to resonate with a lot of people, thank scientists you. and non. Um, yeah. Please go find yourself a copy of Her Hidden Genius. Thank and please you. do – thank you. Thank you. Please do a rate and review this episode if you've loved it, which I'm sure you have. You can follow and like this podcast where you follow and like your podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more Thank you so much.